We're continuing our study of uh, the book of Ephesians, and we're studying a sort of a series within the series in this entire wonderful epistle written by Apostle Paul. As we study Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, all the way to chapter 6, verse 33, we're basically talking about three types of relationships. First is that of the marital relationship, husband-wife relationship. Second, it is more of a family relationship where the parents are relating to their children. The third relationship, which we're about to address today, is that of work relationship between the masters and the slaves. Now, these three types of relationships, they are part of the sociocultural structure in those days. That is the Greco-Roman world. And also, even for the Jews, this was pretty much accepted norm of those days. And the theme is that of authority and subsequently submission. But it is interesting that Paul does not really deal with the issues of the social structure or the authority structure, even though there may be a lot of abuses. There are all these questions about human rights and all. But Paul is not interested in that. Paul is more interested during his time to focus on the purity of the gospel, the essence of the gospel. That foundation had to be laid down for the early church. And then subsequently, other Christians all throughout church history will deal with various issues that are related to social structure and discrimination, abuses, and all that. But what is interesting and what is amazing is that even though Paul accepts the structure of those days, he interprets them differently. So he basically redefines or even transforms the concepts of authority and submission. And this is what is revolutionary. If you understand the context, then you'll see that Paul is not just relegating himself to accept that passively. He is actually making a prophetic statement about each of these kind of structures. And his guiding principle, of course, is found in chapter 5, verse 21. This precedes all the other texts related to authority and submission. He says in chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, you don't have to remember anything that I've taught you in the past three weeks or so. If you just remember this text and abide by this text, then you should have no problem whether you are a parent or, or you're a child or whether you're a wife or a husband, whether you're a slave or the master, shouldn't make any difference. Because we are all called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. After making this statement, Paul goes right into that statement about wives. Based upon that statement preceding that, wives, now submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. See, the qualifying statement here is, as you do to the Lord. In other words, your submission to your husband must have an added quality to it. You can't just submit because it, the law says, because the word says, because this is God's will. 
That's not sufficient in Christ. You have to have a real heart of reverence towards Christ. And if you have that reverence towards Christ, project that unto your husband. And then Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now the husband's duty is to love and to care for his wife. Never once, all throughout this lengthy text, Paul addresses the issues like, you know, domination. You know, authority. Strong-handed control over situation. Having the finer say. None of that. And yet, I don't know why, all throughout church history, so many men have taken this passage, or so many of those who are in authority positions, taken this passage to pretty much advocate the, the power and authority. But none of the contents addresses any of that. And then Paul talks to the children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Children's duty is to obey. This is much more stronger than the concept of submission. Because it has to be an external application of it. Obey. But as I mentioned last week, there's a condition to this. If you are now living independently, away from home, you have freedom. But as long as you're under the roof, the authority is your father and your mother. So therefore, you should obey the rule of the house. Another condition is this. If you're a believer and you have unbelieving parents, obviously, you have to put a condition to it. It. If they tell you not to obey the Lord, not to go to church, not to do the Christian thing, then you must disobey. Even the government, there is room for civil disobedience when the government forces you to do something that is contrary to the word and the will of God. Having said that, what doesn't change is the concept of honoring your parents. That is a perpetual thing. That could never change. I may not have to obey my parents, but I could honor my parents. Even if I had unbelieving parents, I can truly honor them. We should honor them for who they are, what they have done. Without them, I would not be here. I'm indebted to them. Perhaps uh, nowadays, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even a million dollars. I'm in debt to them. I don't have that kind of relation with anybody else but my parents. I could never pay them back. They don't expect me to pay them back. Only way I can pay that back is through honor, love, and prayer so that God may take care of them. And then Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I went the long way about to explain this concept of exasperating, which means to frustrate them and to, to uh, create such a sort of pressurized situation whereby the children are provoked to anger and ultimately to rebellion. We as parents, we must remember not to exasperate our children, and not only our children, anybody 
who works for us, anybody who's under our authority, let us not exasperate them. What should we do instead? We should teach, rebuke, correct, and train people in righteousness according to the word of God. Remember those four key words, teach. We need to instruct them. Tell them what it's about, what, what the rules of the game is about. We should also rebuke them. Correct them, that is, align them, help them to make the adjustments. But basically train them up, nurture them, strengthen them, raise them up in righteousness so they are capable of abiding by the Lord. And today, now, we're talking about a new type of relationship that happens usually in the work context between masters and slaves. And, of course, we can apply that to employer and employee relationship. Those who are in the position of supervision and we, the common working folks. And so we'll be talking about this kind of relationship. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when the eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Amen. Now, we need to know uh, something about the, the, the whole culture of slavery in the first century. In the Roman Empire, the slaves were the primary workforce. You might even say the entire workforce because the philosophy in those days is that free men just do not labor. If they work, they do it out of pleasure. They do it out of luxury. They do it because they are talented, they are gifted. They're not forced to work. But the slaves, they have no choice in the matter. They are forced to work. They said that in the Roman Empire in those days, there were something like 60 million slaves. I didn't even know that there were that many people in those days. And this was only one-third of the population. One-third of the population was the slave population. And the slaves were involved in all levels of work. They were not just doing the, the dirty, lowly, the most demeaning work. That too, of course. But they were sometimes placed in the position of administrators, teachers, even doctors. But most of the slaves, they ended up as a sort of house servants. And this seems to be the context in which Paul is writing. And when everything works out really well, there's a sort of a bond of loyalty and affection. That the slaves become part of the family, so to speak. And yet... In those days, the slaves really had no right. They were not even considered a person. They were considered the thing. And by the way, they were the lowest in the chain of subordination. 
right above that are the children of their masters. And above that is the wife of the master. But even they are considered things. They are considered property to the master because it was a man's world in those days. So much so that the great philosopher Aristotle had this condescending remark. He said, a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. I mean, he made this analogy of the slave as a tool. And what is tool? It's a, it's a slave form that is inanimate, a thing. So now you see that even though the slaves were privileged to be in the house and to be involved in a very endearing type of relationship, ultimately they had no rights. And today that really makes no sense. If you're going to give them that much privilege, that much opportunity, that much freedom, then you must also give them the right, human right. Now I want to talk a little bit about work before we get into the text. How many of you believe that the work is a blessing of God? Okay, I see those hands going up very slowly. You know. Work, if it is understood in the right way, and if work is truly a genuine way that can bring joy and meaning to us, it is truly a blessing. But for many, many people, work is associated with toilsome labor, struggle, suffering, and hell. For some, they even hold on to this misconceived notion that work is associated with curse. And that's because they read the Genesis 3 text as though work has been cursed by God. But let me read for you in verses 17 to 18. The curse is actually not upon the work. The curse is upon the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you, the Lord says. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. What is God saying? The work itself is not cursed. The curse is upon the land. Curse is upon the environment. Curse is upon the culture around you. And because of that, and because you are living in that culture, in that environment, on that earth, that will definitely have a negative effect upon you. That it will be toilsome. It's like, you know, the soil do not produce, you know, good crops. There are thorns and thistles, weeds. And when you work, you're going to have to sweat it out. You have to toil through your works. But it is clear from Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, that the work was actually given to Adam and Eve. They were to rule over the earth. And in a private sense, they were to take care of the garden. That's a lot of work, if you think about it. And then they were supposed to expand that out so that they would have the whole realm of earth to rule over eventually through their descendants. So they had a lot of work that they had to be engaged in. And did you know when we go to heaven, we are going to be working? I know that uh, there are people 
who think that when we go to work, finally, no more of this nine to five stuff, you know? No more work for pay, you know? No more toiling and, you know, coming home and then, whew, this is Saturday night and, you know, I can party it up and I can just, you know, relax on Saturday and I could go to church on Sunday. And then Monday comes along and I'm going, oh no. You know, I, I go through the same thing. So, uh, you know, I understand yeah. what you're going through. But that doesn't mean we'll be liberated from work. Work has never been cursed in the first place. But we don't know what that's like. To work out of joy and out of ecstasy and out of inspiration. I think the closest thing that comes to working with that kind of positive and optimistic spirit is art. But I don't call art work. I call it art, art. <laughs> and that's why I can spend so many hours, so much energy, and I can be involved in theodrama, and I don't even know that time is passing because it gives me joy. But what if I can work in any area of my work as though it's a work of art, as though there's inspiration of the Holy Spirit prompting me and giving me joy in the process? I think that ought to be our goal. That we should work to serve the Lord. That we should work to serve others and to benefit others. We should work to inspire others so that everyone contributes to the betterment of the society. But having said that, even though work itself is not a curse, Work can become a curse if it is done improperly. Instead of the spirit of servitude and true stewardship, instead of having the dignity that I am representing Christ in this arena of work, the work can become a drudgery and it can be torturesome. And that's why we sometimes have these terms, you know, the isms that are associated with what happens when work becomes cursed. Institutionalism, bureaucracy, mechanization. You're familiar with that term? Where human beings are beginning to lose their sense of identity because they are almost becoming like machines or they're working like the beast burden, you know, like the cow in the field. But if we can truly understand the economy of work from a providential perspective, that God has put work into play so that it can provide for the needs of the people, then we are going to see the relationship between the supervisor and the subordinate, the employer and employee in a whole new light. And let me... At the very beginning of this exposition, I'd like to give you one word. And that one word in this relationship is accountability or responsibility. Could you repeat it after me? Accountability. accountability. Responsibility. responsibility. So when we work, we do it with a sense of duty before God and the people. Being responsible. Being held accountable. This is the important thing. So today I'm going to talk about the worker's responsibility and then the supervisor's responsibility.
Let's begin with verse 5, and let's see the slaves part. Okay? And along with slaves, you may slash that and say employees, okay? or, or a common worker. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Once again, in this sort of a lengthy text that addresses the issue of authority and submission, Paul begins with those who are subordinates. He did the same thing. He began with wife instead of husband. He, he began with the children instead of the parents. Now he's saying slaves. He begins with them because that is understood that, that their place is a place of subordination. But what is interesting in this passage, in this world of exhortation to the slaves, is that every single verse here, out of the four verses, every single verse has a reference to Christ the Lord. And that's why I read it deliberately and underlined it even for you so that you can see that somehow the slaves are not going to be motivated to do the works in a proper way unless everything is referenced to Christ. Somehow everything is related to Christ. That somehow everything should be done in perspective in relation to Christ. How can we restore the dignity of work? Think about your line of work. You know, because of your work, you're getting a paycheck and that's a way to make a living, put bread on the table and provide for your family's need and, and so forth. Okay. Think about your line of work. But where's dignity in that work? Where's value in that work? Besides the paycheck, I'm not talking about the paycheck. Can you find dignity and value? Perhaps even meaning, and may I use the word essence? Can we find that even in work? I believe we can. And only way we can find that is the way we find that in any other area of our life. And that is, if we can do it as we do it unto the Lord. It's as simple as that. Without the Lord in mind, it is difficult for us to work, especially slaves. You know, slavery form of institution is kind of like communism. And why did communism fail in general? Because people, it didn't matter whether you worked hard an extra hour or two, you know, because you, at the end of the day, you're going to get the same amount as the person next to you. And it has a way of uh, demotivating individuals. On the other hand, capitalism says, yeah, you can, as, as much as you work, you can get so much, and then 
they get into greed and all forms of materialistic, you know, materialistic obsession. But in communism or in slavery, people are naturally demotivated. And, uh, you know, they, they work, but they're always keeping their eyes on the master to see whether they're watching or not. So that when they're not watching, they have no reason to work harder. Because at the end of the day, you receive the same pay. Or you receive the same credit. So let us see how we can restore dignity to our work by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. The first principle that I want to share with you is this. To whoever the authority figure may be, we must learn to show respect. And we start that in the family by learning how to show respect to the father, to the mother, who were the authority figure of our lives. We show respect to our Sunday school teachers. Doesn't have to be the pastor. It's anybody who is placed over you. Authority figure. Out in the world, we show respect to the policemen. You know, I mean, in America, we have some, you know, dirty slangs and dirty remarks about cops, you know. In the olden days, some, you know, the hippies used to call them pigs. That should not be. Not all cops are pigs. Without them, we will have chaos in this world. We should generally show respect to the policemen. We should show respect to the military system. As long as they are not oppressive, we should show respect. We should show respect to the government leaders as well for doing their works to care for our society. But we should show respect to authority and how do we show that respect? By working sincerely, as though we are obeying the Lord. In verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And he's talking about this trembling fear, actually. Don't take it for granted. Don't think that you can get away with it. You will be held accountable if you don't work. And so show respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So when you're obeying your earthly master, when you're obeying your employer, it is not only for the pay. You're obeying them as though you're obeying the Lord. Can we translate our work into that form so that whoever is the one over you, you look unto them and show respect no matter what. I think uh, we have a good system in Confucianism, to a degree. I know that there are, of course, we need to really um, critique certain things. But basically, the social structure that was laid down for us, especially in the Northeast uh, Asia, we do have really great concept of Confucianism that lays down the social structure especially in relation to those who are above us, those who are below us. And we should abide by that. It's a law. It's a law of nature. And so authority and obedience, we need to get used to that. 
the younger generation who are not taught this way, they have no regard for authority, no understanding of obedience. I found this so true in America. In America, nation was founded by rebelling against the monarch of England, right? And so that has just kind of been planted in our mind. And it has to do with like protests. It has to do with rebellion. It has to do with independent spiritedness. That's necessary. That's good. But sometimes that's devastating when we try to understand the kingdom of God. You think if we could suddenly, not being obedient to human masters, we could suddenly translate that into you know, submission to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings? Not so. We think we are, but down deep inside, we may have baggages of disobedience and rebellion. We need to deal with that. And God places authority figures upon our lives to deal with that. So that comes forth in rebellion. That You have to uproot that, deal with that. What did the Lord say to Cain? You know, he had this kind of jealousy and anger and, and wrath towards his brother Abel. And the Lord said, you know, there's this like wild beast right at the threshold of your house. It's about to enter and take control over you. But you must master that. You must uproot that. We must uproot that spirit of rebellion. And that doesn't just happen in abstraction. It happens in real world as you learn to submit to the authority figures around you. And besides, they are the ones who are you know, making the paycheck for you. You should obey them and honor them because of that. Second principle that I would like to share is this. We need to learn how to work diligently and wholeheartedly as those serving the Lord. Verses 6 to 7. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Nobody can judge another person's quality of work in terms of their character and uh, their disposition. We can't get inside of their hearts, inside of their motives. Only you can. Only you can operate with a sense of conscience. I'm given this work to do. Am I doing it conscientiously? Am I putting really the wholehearted effort in this? Or am I just you know, looking to see how the master is monitoring me? And when I see, you know, now CCTV camera there, suddenly mm, I shape up. But when there's no camera on, no eyes, no big brother watching me, then I am, you know, lazy and passive. I've noted it even in our school. Uh, we have, you know, wonderful professors, wonderful staff, but occasionally you see staff members. You, you know right away that this person's always uh, like watching to see where you are. And when you show up, suddenly, you know, he's trying to put on an act like he's been working really hard. But behind your back, lazy, passive, irresponsible. And we should not be like that as Christians, Apostle Paul is saying. That's why there's something more important than simply the structure and the societal dynamic 
More important is our motive, our heart. How do we work? Can we work for an abusive uh, a leader who is taking advantage of us? And yet, can I do it as though I'm serving the Lord? This is the challenge. And remember, Apostle Paul says, act as though you are a slave of Christ. Do loss. Do loss. Slave of Christ. Can you be a slave to men because you're a slave to Christ? Third principle is this. Trust that the Lord will reward you for the quality of your work. In verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Okay? This is the problem when we're working for our boss. And sometimes we feel like we're not being paid justly. We're not being recognized justly. And so we calculate everything based upon what comes out of their hands or what comes out of their mouth. What comes out of their praising or commending us? But what Paul is saying is, no. The reward is in the hand of the Lord. Even justice is in the hand of the Lord. Vindication, you must learn to surrender in the hand of the Lord. And trust that. How much do you trust that in due time the Lord will reward you and He will lift you up? And so I hope that you can remember these three principles. First, Show respect to authority and work sincerely as though you're obeying the Lord. Principle two, work diligently and wholeheartedly as though you're serving the Lord. Principle three, trust that the Lord himself will reward you for the quality of your work. And I believe that if you abide by these three principles, it will really liberate you. Because the focus is not upon the man, not upon that person, not upon that boss. Not upon the system. The focus is upon Christ, who is the ruler and authority over everything. And if he placed you there, even in a, a very uninviting, unenticing type of situation, which we face all the time in the working world, then remember, he's the sovereign Lord. And so we need to submit to Christ. If not, one good thing is that as a slave or as a servant, you can work your way out of that system. You know that. You can quit that job. You can run away from that. But if you're a child and you're under the authority of the parents, you don't have that kind of liberty. And if you're a wife under your husband's authority, then you don't have that liberty. Unless you want to go to that extreme way of you know, signing a divorce with your spouse or signing a divorce with your, sometimes with your parents. Now, nowadays, kids talk about that all the time. I want to divorce my parents, you know. <laughs> does that make sense? It really does not. But that happens today. Now let's talk about the supervisor's responsibility. And it's relatively short in text, but it's rich with meaning and implication. In verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Principle number one, 
show the same respect as a slave is to show the master, the master is supposed to show mutual respect and serve the workers wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. Verse 9, 8, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. In other words, everything that uh, Paul has been saying, right above that, that applies to the masters as well. You've got to treat your slaves in the same way with respect and also with the heart of service that desires the very best of your workers and the workers' well-being. Principle number two, do not abuse your authority by bullying the workers. Now, where do we hear this principle? Last week, Apostle Paul told parents, do not exasperate your children. In one word, he just said, don't frustrate them. That should be the acid test. Are, are the kids obeying you because they, they truly desire to obey you? Do they understand the principle of obedience? Or are they being threatened? Are they being bullied? Are they being pressurized to submit to your authority? Where well, it's just a matter of time before they will rebel. So Paul says now to the masters, do not threaten them. That's the worst way of dealing with the workers underneath you. And we see masters, we see employers, we see people in authority constantly threatening them. Just check yourself. If you're in authority, and I am in authority, I'm in authority at, at church, at home, at the school, in, in general, simply because I have the title as a, a pastor. You know, people look up to me. Now, how do I use that? How do I use that privilege? Do I threaten them? Do I even give them an any kind of notion like, yeah, man, if you don't do it, God's going to you know, punish you. Or if you don't do it, then I'm going to use my right to make it difficult for you. I'm going to demote you. You know, we as professors, I'm, I'm in charge of a, a department of international students, so I have two staff working underneath me, and I have to give evaluation every year. I don't really like doing that, but I have to. And they know that I give evaluation at the end of every year. So when the evaluation time comes, I know immediately they're like double, you know, double gracious to me. I don't, I don't know why, but, but I mean, I have a re really good relationship, so I give them very good accommodation. But I could use that, you know what I mean? I could use that against them and say, well, the time of evaluation is coming soon. Uh, so what do you think we need to work on? Because I really want to give you a good commendation. But you know, if we don't do a good job, then I could you know, make life difficult for you. Subtle form of threatening them. That should not be. But it is up to us and our conscience to decide what is proper and what is right before God. And the basis for not threatening them is exactly this, the next verse. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him, you treat your workers that way, you better watch out because I am watching over you. I am the supervisor over you, the supervisor. Because you will be held accountable before the Lord for your leadership. Every leader will be. 
Every person in a position of responsibility will be. And therefore, we should not take our position lightly and just simply think that this is an automatic thing because I am, I am entitled to be in this position. You and I, we are not. Every authority that is given under heaven is delegated authority. It is not an inherent authority. You're not born as a monarch. Even monarchs are delegated by God. But they don't know that. They think it's inherent. They think it's an intrinsic thing. They have their own inherent right. And that is absolutely wrong. Do you remember there's a book, a letter by Paul, that addresses this very issue of a master and slave relationship. Do you remember which book that is? Yeah, Philemon, right? Okay, who is Philemon? He's a master, obviously, and he had a slave named Onesimus who uh, ran away from the master and arrived at, if it was in Rome that Apostle Paul was writing in his imprisoned state, then he ran away all the way to Rome and he confided in Paul. Maybe he tattletailed you know, about what you know, Philemon has been doing and all that. And now Paul is writing a letter. And now he's returning Onesimus back to Philemon. I like to pronounce it as Philemon. And then he says, I want you to accept this brother instead of punishing him. You could penalize him all you want because he's done wrong. But he was operating in his weakness and now he's regretful about that. He wants you to receive him back. And along with that, in verse 16, he says, but I don't want you to accept him no longer as a slave, but I want you to accept him as someone better than a slave, as a dear brother. Can you do that? I mean, he's, he is going to be a slave to Philemon, but he's saying, I know, social status-wise, he's a slave, but even that slave can be your brother because he is your brother in Christ now. Can you do that for me? Because I'm also a prisoner right now. And if you accept me as a brother, then please accept Onesimus as a brother. And he's trying to get them reconciled. Just remember, these masters of the world, these slaves of the world, whoever they may be, if they have come into Christ, then you must show respect that much more. And obviously, the slaves that the Apostle Paul is addressing are those who are in Christ. And that means the masters who are also in Christ that he is addressing to, they are also in Christ. So they must regard these as fellow brothers instead of as slaves. Then everything changes. If you accept each other as fellow brothers and sisters, it doesn't really matter whether you're above, whether you're below. Because the priority is treating each other as a brother and sister in Christ. How would you do that? That's how the Lord is going to judge us in the long run. And in a letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 11, there's this famous statement by Paul. 
which also we find reflected in Galatians 3.28 that he wrote earlier. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So what does it really matter? This whole issue about authority and submission, they're really nothing compared to the authority of Christ, who is the Lord over us all and who is in all, who is watching and supervising everything that we do. Can we trust that the Lord is in control or do you feel like your working situation, everything is out of control? How big is the Lord in this picture? Maybe we've magnified this situation of this very uncomfortable situation, very unjust situation, and we magnified it so much that Christ becomes small. But here, Apostle Paul is saying, make Christ big. Make Him the Lord over this work situation. And if we can have this kind of perspective, I think we will fare so much better than what we're doing in the present. Amen? Amen. Amen. I know this is a difficult thing, especially for some of you who find yourself in a very, very uh, unjust situation. I've been talking to a number of people who have shared with me of how they, they just want to quit their job and get out of that place. And, and they, they've been treated very unfairly. But uh, before we make any kind of rash decisions, I would like to exhort you. Read this passage very clearly and seriously ask the Lord what the essence of this message is. The essence of this message is none other than do all things out of the perspective of Christ. Bring Christ into that picture. Bring Christ into your work situation. And ask this question. Can I do it as unto the Lord? Or can I do it as though Christ would do this work in and through me? Can I regard my master? Can I look at my uh, servant? as the way Christ would look at them. What would Christ do in this situation? This, I believe, will give us true perspective in work relationship, in parent-children relationship, in husband-wife situation, or any kind of social dynamic that we get engaged in. Amen. Let's pray.